would uh, like for you to uh, think a little bit about where we're at in the overall context of what we looked at yesterday. God had always been the deliverer and the king for his people. But the people got to where they were not satisfied with the Lord. They wanted a human king like the nations. And that's exactly the kind of king God gave them. He gave them a king that was tall, that was handsome, and that was a good warrior. And that's what they were really looking for. That's what they wanted. And uh, so Saul was a humble man when he began to his role and his work. But we see how he was threatened by the Philistines. He really didn't want to go to battle against the Philistines with, without asking the favor of the Lord. So he uh, was supposed to wait for Samuel to offer the sacrifices. He was supposed to wait seven days, but on the seventh day, he just couldn't wait any longer. He offered the sacrifice himself. As soon as he finished, Saul, uh, Samuel showed up. And, uh, and Samuel said, what have you done? And he's like, well, because this, because this, because... I forced myself on off of the sacrifice. And Samuel told him the decree of the Lord that the kingship was being taken away from him and his family. His uh, dynasty was, days were numbered uh, because he was not obedient to what the Lord had said. That's really where we ended last night. Anything we need to say to fill in the gaps or any questions you've got before we continue? Okay, so we're in 1 Samuel 13. Would somebody read 15 to 23? And Samuel rose and went up from the country of Gibeah of Benjamin and saw the number of the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Now Saul and his son Jonathan, the people who were present with him, were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Gibeah. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual, and another company turned toward Bethorah, and another company turned toward the border which overlooked the mountains of the toward the wilderness. Now no black could be found in all the land of Israel, but the Philistines said otherwise the Hebrews would make swords and spears. So all Israel went down east to Shark and his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his ship, his charge. Two pairs of the shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and the fixed posts. So it came about on the day of the battle, and neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage. Okay, so um, Saul and Jonathan are uh, encamped, but uh, there's not very many of them. Uh, there are. Uh, Philistine raiders that are making life difficult for Israel at this point. But there's a special situation that makes life especially complicated for the Israelites. What's that? The weapons. What do the Philistines have that the Israelites don't have? Which means what? What did they have? That technology, in this case, the technology was what? Swords and spears. What's the, pro what's the uh, um, resource that they have? Iron. Iron. 
This is the beginning of the Iron Age. The Philistines have a monopoly on the iron. Only they have the iron implements to sharpen even the agricultural tools. They have your superior weapons. I mean, just think about it. Weapons of iron are going to be superior to weapons of what would they, what would the others have? Bronze. Of what? Bronze. Bronze, maybe. Stone, wood. You know, so really the Philistines have a huge advantage because they have uh, sort of a, a, a uh, lock on the strategic metal of the day. And, and, and so they can charge any price they want to sharpen the tools. And they're the ones that have the swords and the spears and all of that. Uh, so really it looked pretty much hopeless. For Israel, I mean, God had originally chosen Saul and intended him to defeat the Philistines, but there's not going to be any way. He doesn't have enough people, and he doesn't have the resources. Do you see the plight? And we're going to see how this plays out, but it looks hopeless. Comments and questions on this situation. Alright, in this context, what are they going to do? Chapter 14, Verses 1 through, uh, let's do 1 through 5. Now it, uh, now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, come, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he did not, but he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah, under a pomegranate tree, which is in Israel. The people who were, who, were, who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there is a sharp rock on one side, and a sharp rock on the other. And the name of the one was Ozes, and the name of the other was <coughs> Sinna. The front of the one faced northward opposite Michmash, the other southward opposite Gibeah. Okay, here's the setting. There's this hopeless scene, the Philistines' advantage in every way, and what does Jonathan do? to go visit the Philistines. <laughs> yeah. He and his armor bearer are going to go over to uh, the Philistine garrison. Now, who does Jonathan tell where he's going? <clears throat> Evidently, no one. Not his father. Nobody knows where he's gone. I really take it that Jonathan probably didn't have a lot of He's going to act unilaterally in what he's about to do. And so nobody knows he's gone, but the two of them, Jonathan and his armor bearer, go up to the Philistine garrison. Meanwhile, with Saul there under the tree, is uh, Ahijah. And Ahijah was the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother. Remember Ichabod? Who is Ichabod? The orphan. Yeah, the orphan. That's exactly right. Eli's grandson, 
Nehemechabad means no glory because God had been stolen by the Philistines. That's what they thought when the ark was taken by them. So the glory had departed. Uh, so it's uh, maybe not uh, a really encouraging thing to know that uh, Saul's chaplain is a relative of uh, no glory. And uh, he, so that's where he is. Uh, you've got the rejected priest and the rejected king kind of there together. And you've got Jonathan and his armor bearer on their way to the Philistine garrison. This really all is just setting the setting for what's about to happen. Thoughts and comments? All right, uh, let's do 6 to 23. And Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am according to your desire. And Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross to the, over to the man and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. The Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be assigned to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistine says, behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor battered and said, come up to us, and we will tell you something. Then Jonathan said to the armor bearer, Come after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of, the, of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about twenty men within a half a furrow of an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled. And the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. Now Saul's watchman in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away. And when they and they went here and there, Saul said to the, the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when he had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priests, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him <coughs> came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth Aden. Wow. So look at verse 6. This has got to be one of the classic statements of faith in all the Bible. <laughs> Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Saul was always worried about how many men he had. 
when the men are disappearing from him, he gets all panicky. Jonathan has one man with him, and that doesn't bother him. So, doesn't make any difference to God how many people are on his side. Isn't that an incredible display of confidence in the Lord? But is that true? Does it really matter to God how many people are with him? You know, when you're God, the, the size of the human army that's on your side is totally irrelevant. It doesn't have any bearing on anything. You know, however many or few there might be is a, is a matter of indifference because you're God. So, Jonathan says, well, we'll just go up. But they need to know whether or not it's really God's will that they go up or not. So Jonathan comes up with this plan. What's the plan? They'll reveal themselves and see what the response is. And if the response is? Come up to us, then they were to, then they were to give it into their hands, and if it was, you know, we'll come down to you. Now, did you think about that very much? The idea is the Philistine garrison is above them, this outpost. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer are going to call out to them and reveal themselves to them. And if the Philistines say, come up to us, then that's a sign they ought to go up. That's a sign that God wants them to go up. Do you see any strategic disadvantages to this approach? <laughs> Well, they got two guys. That's a strategic disadvantage. <laughs> they have to crawl. Yeah, they have to crawl. They have to, to climb up. It's going to be easier if they were going down. Coming up, the Philistines can pick them off if they want to. But I think the biggest strategic disadvantage of this plan is what? Going away two beats twenty is an element of surprise. Absolutely, you know, they're, they're, they, there's no surprise attack. I mean, they let them know we're coming up to you. You know, I don't think I would want to uh, reveal uh, my uh, where I was and that I was coming to these guys. What do you see in this? They realize that strategy is not involved in this. This is not a matter of military tactics. This is a matter of what God wants. If God wants them to go up, they'll have success. We, we are so worried about the, the, the how. You know, we want the right tactics, the right approach. You know, is it this? Is it that? Do you see it this way? Do you see it that way? Do you use this? Do you use that? Wait a minute. What are we relying on? What's our trust in? In God? Or is it in our idea of the right strategy? I think we struggle with that in our battle to teach the gospel and bring people to the Lord. Because so often we rely on, if I could just get the right technique, you know, if you use this approach, if you use this technology, if you use this, that, or the other thing, and, and we begin to think that's the key. You know, man, I had the best, you know, whatever. You know, well, that's not it. That, that's, not, that's not what's going to make the gospel effective. What makes the gospel effective? The Lord and his word. It has nothing to do with, you know, 
I, I said it really slick. The advertising was really cool. The building was laid out so good. Or whatever it is we're thinking about. So I really appreciate Jonathan's attitude of trust and faith in God. Comments and thoughts to that point. Yeah, comments. Yeah. Uh, going along with what you were saying, so often we take our physical limitations and we completely forget passages like Ephesians that tell us how much further beyond the things that we could ever expect from God that He can do through us. And we put faith in ourselves and faith in those around us instead of the one place that we should put faith. What happens when we put faith in ourselves if we are victorious? Exactly! We end up exalting ourselves. Do you think that's what God really wants? You know, that's not a good thing. We need to really, truly trust God and realize He is the one with the resources, not us. Uh, it's His Word that will do the job. It's not our tactics and techniques. Other thoughts on that? Yes, Stephen. It's interesting how God consistently makes a situation to where it, it gets more difficult. Like it, it, it makes it to where only God can be glorified. It's a lot, a lot like Gideon, you know, you narrow the army down to where you're not going to be able to boast at the end of the day, except in the Lord. Yes. Have you noticed how God has a habit of choosing the least likely? You know, uh, he, he is afraid that man will try to glorify himself. So Gideon has too many when his, outnumber, his army's outnumbered four to one. So they let the ones who are afraid go home, and now his army's outnumbered 13 to one, still too many. So he only takes the uh, overmothered men who lap the uh, water up. They didn't, it's a little too squeamish to put their head under there to drink the water. Those are the ones that he selects. Isn't that amazing? Tell you what I'm going to do again here, and then I'll let you talk. Why don't we get some more people coming forward and over, and that would help so much with people coming in at the back. So if you can move forward or over here, you guys move down, and then we'll have lots more opportunities. I know that's kind of annoying, but it's just so much easier when people come in if you move forward and over and over, and then. It's all good. We got lots of space. I like you guys. It's always cool when you give orders and people obey you. So. <laughs> You're my favorite audience. <laughs> but that is a big help, so thank you. Alright, there were several hands up. Yes. In verse 10, when Jonathan kind of chooses a sign for God to... Do. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure how I should take that. I mean, is that something that we should do? Like, I, mean, I don't know. I'm not sure, quite sure how to analyze that. Great question. I don't have a great answer. <laughs> I will say that we know God's word is absolutely reliable. So if we look to God's word to give us the exact instructions we should follow, we can have confidence in that. 
I don't know to what extent we can impose the sign and take that as God's will, but we certainly can rely on what he says. So that, that perhaps is as far as I want to affirm confidently. Like I've, I've heard people saying, you know, asking God to give them a sign for something, maybe not that's exactly spelled out, maybe it's just a decision, that, a big decision they have to make, like, you know, a job or something like that. So I was wondering if there's any type of application besides just... I don't know whether that can happen or not. I, I will say, perhaps it doesn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't be overly troubled about that at least, if it's for something that God really hasn't spelled out. But I'll tell you what we must never do, and you certainly wouldn't find Jonathan doing this. You must never say, well, uh, I'm going to see what, uh, I'm going to suggest this, uh, this test to find out whether God wants me to live in adultery or not, or something like that. You know, sometimes people will do things like that. You know, they don't really want what the Lord revealed, so they'll do like Balaam, I'll see what else the Lord says. I'll see if I can find a better answer. We should never do that. But I, I don't know the answer to your question. I also think we don't, we shouldn't like take time to like, or we should make sure we are taking the time to really think through you know, spiritually what God would want from us and we're not just trying to find a shortcut. And Jonathan, of course, he's already taken this trip through the crags, you know, and he really knows what the Lord wants. Uh, and so he's kind of looking for a timing thing, not really necessarily is this God's will or not. And this is clearly not a matter of him trying to get out of doing something. This is a matter of him exposing himself to great peril and doing something very dangerous and difficult because he really wants to advance the cause of God. But you think about, going back to the idea of, of uh, overcoming the great odds, I mean, when, when God wants somebody to defeat Goliath, he doesn't select a, a, a warrior. When God wants apostles to spread his word, he doesn't select college professors and lawyers and doctors and so forth. God, God, God is glorified most when the odds are totally stacked against him and he wins the victory. So there's a lot of times when you see God operating in that way, Alex. Uh, well, that occurs to me because, you know, I grew up in atheist background and, and a lot of atheists believe that, you know, things happen by chance and that the world is full of coincidences. And I think that's really powerful for God because he does things that are so unlikely, such as, you know, David slaying Goliath or, or Jonathan and his armor bearer going up to this garrison and succeeding and killing many men. It's because it's so hard to say this is just coincidence, this is just coincidence, this is just coincidence. It always, always, always just points to God as pretty much the only answer. He does some incredible stuff. David? He also reminds us of Hannah in chapter 1. God blesses those who take risks for him who are willing to sacrifice. Amen. Exactly. So, you, they, they go up. They take this as a sign from God. They go up and they they kill twenty men in this Philistine outburst, uh, outpost. And then there's something like a great earthquake. The ground starts shaking, and it it scares the Philistines apparently, and gives the advantage to Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they pursue them. You got these two guys routing the army of the Philistines, Saul and his men hear about this. They realize something's going on. And uh, so they're trying to figure out who's doing it. And so they number the men and find out Jonathan is an armor bearer, the one that's ones that are gone. Now at this point, Saul would like to know what God wants them to do. 
So we asked the, there's a translational question here, uh, uh, really a question of uh, which reading is correct. Either ask for the ark to be brought or for the ephod to be brought. The Greek translation has ephod, and that's probably correct here. I think the, the question is probably of the Urim and the Thummim, a way of inquiring of God what he wants them to do. And so he asked for this to be brought, and, and there's a process to go through, evidently, in trying to use this to find out the will of God, but the commotion's increasing, the Philistines are fleeing, things are going on, and what does Jonathan say? Saul. Saul. What does Saul say? Thank you. What does Saul say? Who knows who it is? It's kind of like, forget it. Let's. Yeah, withdraw your hand. You got to go. I don't have time to wait. You know, poor Saul. You know, he's impatient to find out what the will of God is, and then he's too patient to wait to hear it. You know, it, it's more important to go ahead and go to battle than to listen to what God's word is. He takes matters into his own hands. Now, you can tell a lot about how important God's word is to somebody by how much trouble they go to to hear it. And, and, and a lot of times we're a lot like Saul. We're too busy and we've got too much to do to find out what God's will is. We just got to go. We got to do something. Well, how do you know what you're supposed to do if you don't have the patience to listen to what the Lord says about it. And, and, and so this is going to lead Saul to make some foolish moves that could have been disastrous. Uh, but they, they all rally to the battle, and now the whole army of the Israelites are pursuing the Philistines. And the Lord gives them a great victory as they pursue the Philistines. Comments and questions through verse 23. <coughs> Uh, just looking, looking at Jonathan, his arm bearer here, uh, you can see that he's, Jonathan starts something and then his armor bearer kind of affirms it. This leads to great victory with, with everybody. And uh, sometimes we may find ourselves feeling like Jonathan, like we're taking a step out in faith and we need to have that courage to do it. Sometimes we may be the armor bearer where someone comes to us and says, you know, hey, should we do this? And it's our job, I think, at that point to affirm it and to be a blessing and say, yeah, I'm going to do it with you. And so sometimes we need to be Jonathan. If someone comes to us as Jonathan, we need to be the armor bearer to affirm it. And then uh, we see the victory that comes about from that. Excellent point. And just think about our battles. Our battles of spreading the gospel to the lost, of advancing the cause of Christ, that sort of thing. How willing are we to step out, take risks, join with others, and spread the gospel? You know, it's so easy for us to shrink back and to not, not want to collaborate in that because after all, I don't know what's going to happen. We'll probably face rejection or persecution or it won't work out right or whatever. Just the courage of Jonathan, the courage of the armor bearer, their cooperation together to pursue the will of God in spite of the odds against them because they trust the Lord. Really great example for us. I love Jonathan. He's got to be one of the best Bible characters. Uh, going and, and just uh, very encouraging to us. Other thoughts? Okay, um, 24 to 30. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged upon my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. 
And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day, and the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright, because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of his spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Well, Saul takes this oath, or, or speaks this oath. Cursed be the man who eats food before evening. And until I have avenged myself on my enemies. What do you think about that oath? It's showing another, you know, degradation in Saul's character. <coughs> First he's willing to completely circumvent Samuel, and now he's willing to, you know, be really, really arrogant and prideful and vengeful in saying, none of you guys are allowed to eat until I've done my thing. So when he says that, what do you see in his character, in his attitude? Two or three things. <coughs> see, one thing that jumps out to me is that he's saying these are my enemies and I am avenged. Yes! He personalizes this thing. You can't eat until I take vengeance against my enemies. So whose battle was this? And who was Saul doing this for? When we start thinking of this as being my battle, I want to build up my church, I want to make my converts, and I'm doing this, instead of seeing ourselves as the Lord's tools and instruments that he's <coughs> using in his battles for his glory. It's so easy for us to make this like a personal glory and conquest kind of a thing. I think that's a big flaw here on Saul's part. And, and really shows you a lot about his attitude. And then what else would you say about Saul that you can see right here in his sort of character? kind of blurts out these things, he kind of comes to these, you know, sort of reckless conclusions without much forethought or, or much indication of what he ought to do. I don't know, he just doesn't seem like he thinks before he acts. Andrew? It seems like uh, it 
he's not content or not happy, he wants everybody else to suffer with him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good point there. Tim? Well, to me, all of these qualities that we're mentioning, his rashness, his um, running into decisions that are bad, he just seems like a panicker to me. The yeah. second he, he breaks his trouble, all of a sudden he makes a decision without thinking about it. And what do you think would make him so prone to panic? Not trusting in God. That's exactly right. When you don't trust in the Lord, and he's not really your strength, you rely on yourself. No wonder you panic. No wonder you do impulsive, rash things, and you get all flustered, because you're not really trusting in the Lord. Confidence in God calms us. It gives us the ability to wait, to, to act deliberately, to not... I mean, Jonathan is so much calmer, exposing himself to so much more risk because he trusts in God. I, I think you just see so many things about the character of Saul. Here's another thing you might think about. I'm not sure about this. I don't know for sure what Saul was thinking when he said nobody can eat. You know, until I avenge myself on my enemies. Was he saying, I don't want you to take the time to eat. we just got to throw everything to the wind and pursue them. Or was this kind of like, we're going to fast. Was this sort of trying to get the Lord's blessing and favor. It's certainly not out of character for Saul to try to throw something religious at it. To try to get God's favor, even though it wasn't what God said. He did that with the sacrifice. You know, I got I offer the sacrifice, even though he's not doing what God said. Some people will do that for sure. They'll try to just throw something religious at the problem, thinking, oh, well, then God will be happy with me without stopping to inquire, is that what God wants me to do? But it just makes them feel better when they've got some religion. So that may also be a part of this. Thoughts and comments through verse 30? Yeah, Tim. Things sticks out to me is we we talk about how crummy and awful Saul is. He hasn't done any of the bad sins that we always talk about. He's not lying, committing adultery. He's doing all these things that we do a lot, and we don't really treat it like it's that big of a deal. Good point. Yeah. Sometimes we don't think about some of the more fundamental sins that are revealed here. I mean, you might ask, "What did Saul do wrong?" You know, because. Sometimes we only limit sin to certain, you know, immoralities, and we don't realize the <laughs> fundamental matters of a lack of trust in God and, and selfishness and rashness and pride, and those things are very serious sins. Maybe we don't even label them that way, right? Saul was so concerned about losing people. Um, he offered the sacrifice when there were 600 left, but God apparently just needed two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he could have lost another 598 he'd still been okay. Ariel? Um, I'm just thinking about this battle in general. Like, was God giving him the victory because of Jonathan's faith? Because, like, Saul didn't even stop to inquire of him and everything, and he gets involved, but they're still winning. Well, maybe because of Jonathan's faith, and you can certainly see God is an extremely merciful and generous God to his people. Sometimes he gives them victories when we can't see much reason at all why he'd do that. Stephen? interesting like here just like in chapter 17 we're going to see other people doing what Saul should have been doing um, and Jonathan here stepping up David's going to step up in 17 and it's like Saul has to 
oh no, they're doing my job. I gotta like make up for it. And so let's go fast. Let's do something. And just like I'm supposed to be the leader. Let me get out in front. Yeah. Right, right, right. And he realizes that other people are leading. Absolutely. Saul is a very unkingly king. I mean, him sitting under the tree while while Jonathan goes and attacks the outpost is almost typical for Saul and Jonathan in this. Excellent point. Yeah, Chad. I want to look at Jonathan again and just see how he honors his father through all this. Jonathan sees his foolishness and the foolish decisions all made. But Jonathan doesn't dishonor his father in those things. He's always very, he treats him with a lot of respect. He shows him his errors. And I think we can take, take some example on that too. As sons and daughters, we're always going to see eye to eye with our parents. But, but we should show them respect and, and make sure that we, we talk about these Jonathan's not ambitious. Jonathan's not trying to take over the kingdom or to get glory for himself. He's trying to do the will of the Lord and glorify God. Now, he does say in this situation, you know, this is the other part of this I guess we should have said, you know, he does eat some of this honey. He doesn't know anything about the oath. And then the people said, mm. <laughs> Saul made the oath. And... Jonathan said, well, that wasn't very good. Because you see how much strength it gave me to eat this honey. It would have been better if there wasn't this oath. The slaughter would have been greater because the people would have had the strength to give the chase. Jonathan recognizes that Saul was not right in what he said. But Jonathan certainly never institutes any kind of a mutiny. I think it would have been easy for us to have done that. Saul, or Jonathan respects the Lord. Jonathan is a, is a God-fearing man. He's just trying to do the will of God and the work of God. Good point. Other thoughts? Yeah, GR. Gary, we speculate and try to figure out maybe what Saul's motives were. A lot of the things that we've mentioned are very fair because of the context of everything we've looked at. But the one thing we know for sure was when Samuel rebuking couple of chapters ago, he says God sought for himself a man after his heart. So we know that his heart wasn't right and wasn't seeking after the things right. for God. And God was going to make a change. Exactly. Exactly right. Good point. David? I think something else that's, that's interesting through this passage is there may not really be anything in this, but we have the, you know, the start of this section where Saul's saying, Till I have avenged myself, you know, making this his his battle. And then when Jonathan says in 30, how much more for all the people have eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, he makes it more collective than personal. Good point. Chris. At the beginning of 13, you had Saul counting people and collecting people, and it says Jonathan went out and destroyed another garrison of the You're right. Philistines. I don't, I don't know exactly how that fits. It looks like he had maybe a thousand men with him at the time. But he was kind of the one that caused this whole situation in the beginning. The Philistines then came and, and got ready to go to battle. And so then he's the one that kind of finished it, too. I don't know if that fits together somehow. Well, I think it fits together. Jonathan's the one who's got the courage and trust in the Lord to act against the Philistines. Saul's paralyzed until it looks like he's gaining the victory, and then he tries to jump on board. And maybe even the beginning... It, kind of gets the impression Saul was still collecting and counting men and Jonathan went out and started fighting. I think that's right. Yeah, great point. Very good. All right, well, let's see where this goes. Um, let's go ahead and do uh, 31 to 46. It's took all the points that made. Mishmash is a 
as the lawn, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoils, sheep <coughs> and oxen, calves, and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. And they told Saul, Behold, the people are sitting against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people, and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep, and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with them that night. They slaughtered them dead. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saved Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he, he shall surely die. But there is not a man among all the people who answered him. And he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, of, O Lord God of Israel, why do you not answer your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan, Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Okay, 46. Oh. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Well, Saul's rash oath led to some really serious consequences. Among them, once they conquered the Philistines, they took to spoil, they were starving, and so what did the people do? They ate the animals that they took of the spoil without, without draining the blood. God had prohibited Israel from ever eating the blood. For that matter, he's prohibited men in every age from eating blood. And so it took time to bleed an animal to be able to properly eat it. They were so hungry, they didn't take that time. They just eat and ate the animals without bleeding them. And so that was an offense against God. They told Saul, Saul uh, built this altar, first one he'd ever <coughs> built. That's kind of interesting to me. I'll tell you a little bit about his uh, priorities. But he slaughters the animals properly so that they can eat them properly. Uh, but, but Saul's rashness had led to that sin. Then... Saul inquires of the Lord finally through the priest to find out if he ought to go down after the Philistines and finish them off or not. 
And what's God's answer? Doesn't answer. What does that tell Saul? <coughs> God's not with them. Something has happened that God does not choose to answer. God uh, sees sin among them and won't respond. And so he's trying to figure out who's the culprit. And you know how Saul is, given to rash, extreme statements. So he says in verse 39, as the Lord lives who, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. And the people don't say it, but they're like, Ooh, because the people know who did it, and Saul evidently doesn't, but he's like, I don't care if it's Jonathan, it would be a lot. Because Saul is so upset that he wasn't able to pursue the Philistines. You know, this personal battle of his, he couldn't really finish because there was some kind of sin that God wouldn't answer. And so he cast lots to find out who it was. He starts out by suggesting, well, Jonathan and me will be on one side and you guys on the other side and we'll see if it's the people or us. <laughs> it was us. <laughs> and then between Jonathan and Saul, what was Jonathan? Jonathan eating well and breaking Saul's oath made in the name of God profaned the name of God. So there was sin. God's name had been profaned. The oath had been broken. So what's Saul's decision about this? He's going to kill Jonathan. Yes. He asked Jonathan what he's done. Jonathan confesses. And, and Saul says, you're going to die, Jonathan. Do you see a problem with Saul's attitude in this? What's the problem? Amen. He cares more, cares more about a selfish vendetta than his own son, or maybe than the Lord's will. Blake? Yes. What should he have done? He never looks at himself. He never takes the log out of his eye. He's so concerned about the speck in Jonathan's eye. Yes. Where was the problem in this breaking of the oath? With Saul. With Saul. Because he made the foolish oath. He never really <coughs> seeks the source of the problem. He has this foolish bravado, well, we're going to kill Jonathan. When really, he's the one that made the foolish oath. You know, pride keeps him from repenting. You know, he just sort of flounders from one mistake to the next. If you start out wrong, will a second mistake correct your error? How many times have we tried to do that? You know, we do the wrong thing, so we'll try to do something else wrong to make it right. Instead of repenting, instead of humbling ourselves and confessing our sins and admitting, I did the wrong thing, we want to make it okay by doing another wrong thing that will correct the consequences. That is not what he should have done. Does Jonathan get killed here? Why not? What? The people save him. Exactly. The people intervene. This is something so outrageous that the people stop it. We should never carry out a sinful oath. You know, Saul made the oath. 
He should have repented of that instead of killing Jonathan. The people could see that. Jonathan's the one who trusted the Lord and gave the victory. He's not the one that ought to die. So you just see Saul continuing to lose his bearing spiritually because of his pride, because of his self-focus. Um, are, are we like that? Do we become so self-focused and prideful we don't even realize that we're the one that's creating the problem? Comments? Thoughts? When it says that the Lord didn't answer him in that day, do we know it's because Jonathan ate the honey, or was it just not the Lord's time to answer that question? No, I think if this was a judgment on the profaning of God's name. When the oath was broken, Saul took the oath in the name of God that no one was to eat. And so the oath was broken, and therefore God would not respond because of that sin. His name was perfect. Um, I find it very interesting because, as you said, and I think it has a lot of merit, that we're so often like Saul. Like, these aren't these great, huge sins that, you know, like, you know, adultery or murder. It's, it's the little things that are, are still a big deal, and we see that there's just still this even bigger gap between how Saul acts and how David acts. You know, when Saul does something wrong, he tries to carry it out. I mean, he doesn't repent. And David, you know, every time we see David do something wrong, he cries out to God and he repents and he tries to fix what he's done. And obviously, that's a key point. We will none of us get to where we never do anything wrong, but how we deal with that is a huge matter. Camera. You said that the oath that he made earlier about the food not eating, that um, because he made it in the name of the Lord, that he couldn't, um, that if they broke it, then it was a sin. And then again, for killing his son, Jonathan, or whoever did the sin, he made the oath in the name of the Lord. And so would that make, why didn't that one? Well, that one's really bad because that's, a, that's an oath to commit a sin. You know, you make a you make an oath in the name of God to do something that violates God's will. I don't know what you say about that. Certainly not the right thing for him to have done. It just shows you how lost Saul is. Dan? Okay, okay. But you said the other one wasn't with God's will either because he didn't talk to The other one was foolish. The other one was hasty. wasn't necessarily sinful for them not to eat. But it was very unwise, and so he had really made a mistake in that. But to make an oath to kill Jonathan is an oath to do something like that. Uh, how do you compare or contrast this vow to Jephthah's vow? Well, I think Jephthah's vow was very manipulative. I think it's the idea that, you know, if I sacrifice the first person that comes out to greet me, that I can, by that, gain God's guarantee of victory in the battle. This very pagan idea that Jephthah had, and certainly a sinful thing because God did not want human sacrifice. So why did he have to fulfill that vow? Why did he took him to do that? If it was a sinful vow, why can he just not fulfill it like Saul Well, the fact that Jephthah carried out his vow doesn't prove that that's what he should have done. I think it, I don't see that Jephthah was at all concerned about the true will of God throughout his life. When God records something being done, it doesn't necessarily mean it's done with God's approval. And we sometimes make a mistake because we see God gives victories, and we assume if God gives the victory, everything that was done in connection with that was right. God is gracious. 
God gives all sorts of blessings <laughs> to wicked people. That should not be a sign to us that what they're doing wickedly is right. So I don't think it was right for Jephthah to carry out the sinful thing. Yes? Because we, we've been talking about that Saul's been slow to lose in the case of people. It's really obvious now in this past, because twice the people are saying, do what you do what you see fit. Exactly. But then later on, when he says, well, we kill Jonathan, they end up saying, well, no, you're not. We're not going to allow you to kill Jonathan. And now, it's not only losing favor of God, but now he's also losing the favor of these people are supposed to be king over. Uh, absolutely. I mean, when it gets so bad that they have to intervene, you can see Saul is really not doing well. <laughs> right? Uh, I think it's interesting to see what happens when Saul forbids something that God says is good. Um, you know, he's probably thinking that this would make the people more passionate, more spiritual, but it wound up leading them into sin because uh, it you know, denied them this thing that God wanted them to have. You know, sometimes we see that happen today, like forbidding marriage or forbidding some other good thing, and it just pushes people to simply fulfill those desires. Good point. Yes. Yes. So often, our extra rules are counterproductive. A uh, couple things. Do you, do you wonder if part of God's disapproval is this hypocrisy, like all these other people eat the blood, Saul doesn't really seem that concerned about that, whereas someone broke his, and he kind of keys in on that. Well, that certainly shows you something about Saul. He's much more concerned about... <laughs> His agenda than the Lord's. Yeah. Good point. Uh, that was it. Uh, we see a lot of comparisons between Saul <coughs> and the bad judges. I mean, uh, probably some you know, parallels with Gibeon, but here Jephthah's <coughs> clear. In Saul's death, it's like a bit more like I mean, all these things. And I don't know whether it's judges trying to point us to Saul or Samuel trying to point us to the bad judges, but there's a definite comparison between these bad judges and Saul's life. Good point. I mean, leaders who don't trust the Lord are going to be a lot alike. So I think you do see kind of a common motif. That's a good point. Josh? I just had a question. Is there any way for us to get an idea of how old Saul is when he builds this altar? I don't know. I, I don't know the chronology of Saul's life. Uh, there's some several question marks for me in trying to sort all that out. So I don't even know. Okay. Um... We get kind of a summary now of Saul's family and life. It's kind of where you expect the summary to come maybe at the end of his reign. It's not exactly the end of his reign, but it may almost be the end of his reign from God's perspective. So, uh, 47 to 52. Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua, and the names of his, two, of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merib, and the name of the younger Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul, and when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, 
he attached him to his staff. All right, so this kind of summarizes some things about his kingship. You see the victories over foreign enemies. You see his family, his sons, Jonathan and, and the others, his daughters, his wife. Uh, and you see the fact that he continued throughout his career to fight against the Philistines. He grabbed any good soldier he could, but he never really manages to do away with the Philistine threat which is a measure of the failure of his kingship because that was a part of his commission uh, originally in chapter 9. Comments or thoughts on chapter 14? Yes. Is that Saul in verse 52 that when he drew people to himself they were valiant and strong like him, he wasn't really looking for people after God's heart? Good point. He does seem to uh, look more at the physical nature of the person than the spiritual. I agree, David. Um, was pointed out to me that uh, this seems to sum up Saul's life. Uh, at the end of every king's life, particularly in the and in the Samuel King Chronicles, it sums up what they did and, and what they accomplished. And this seems to preclude the rest of his reign, um, which someone pointed out was very interesting uh, because shortly here after Saul Samuel was about to anoint David King. Um, and they made the point that God is going to remove the kingdom from Saul and what we get to that. So his reign is coming to an end, essentially. Yeah. From here on out, Saul is a lame duck, if you understand that expression. His kingship's really been removed from him. He's still acting king, but God doesn't really look at him that way. Okay, let's start into this next section, and then we'll take a break. Chapter 15, verses 1 to 9. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts,